1: Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Krishnan Guru Murthy, and this is an absolute thrill of a listen. Before I come on to that, uh, just to let you know about future live shows and guests, my next live show is on Monday the 3rd of April with Ruth Davidson, the former leader of the Scottish Conservatives. Now, I booked Ruth Davidson in months ago, long before Nicola Sturgeon had announced she was going to resign. That is the next show back after the SNP choose their new leader. We will have a new First Minister of Scotland and who better to talk about that with than someone who absolutely revived the Tories in Scotland. I mean, they were dead and buried until Ruth Davidson came along. They are still the opposition in Scotland as a result of her leadership, and obviously she's just so funny and charismatic. That would be that would have been a great night anyway, but. W- Amazing luck of timing that I'll be joined by um, one of the stars of Scottish politics uh, just days after Scotland gets a new First Minister. On Monday the 17th of April, my guest is Labour's Jess Phillips, one of the most charismatic politicians on the planet. Always a fantastic guest, always really funny, always really passionate. On Monday the 22nd of May, a true heavyweight from the new Labour era and beyond, David Blunkett, who, of course, has overcome huge hurdles in his life to achieve such wonderful things. And is you know, as forthright and as sharp as he has ever been on Monday, the 5th of June, a very rare interview with former Conservative Chancellor Philip Hammond. Uh, I never see him interviewed anywhere. So that is a real coup. And I'm delighted that he's coming on the show. And think of the period that he was chancellor in during the May ministry and Brexit, the meaningful votes, but also that Tory leadership contest in 2019 and and that change in direction. And he's one of those people that was a leading player in our politics and now as a result of those changes um, is, is in a very different place. So that will be absolutely riveting. So four phenomenal guests. Of course, more guests to be announced from the 19th of June onwards. But Ruth Davidson, Jess Phillips, David Blunkett, that is like... A fixed, that's like having a season ticket to a Premier League football club. That's just all big fixtures. Um, you can get tickets to all those shows by clicking on the link um, that is in the blurb uh, on whatever device you listen to, or just go to mattford.com. Follow me on Twitter as well, at mattford, because as soon as I book a guest, I announce it there, and um, which tends to be before obviously getting to record a podcast episode. So on to today's guest. Now, this is, uh, First, it's just one of those interviews where you just get stuck in straight away. And he's just so sharp. He came direct from Channel 4 News. <laughs> He'd been on till 8 o'clock and then effectively got a bike to the to the theatre and came straight on stage. And you would never know. Completely unflappable. But also, all the reasons why he is such a popular broadcaster are, are laid bare here is not just a phenomenal intellect and intelligence and permanent curiosity, but as well as... Um, all that. There is a sweetness to Krishnan Garimuthi that is just just an intensely likable individual, but this is great about impartiality, about pressure on broadcasters, specifically about the BBC, about the pressure that Channel 4 News was under, and Channel 4 is an institution, but so many other stories from his amazing career. I don't want to give away, because there's stuff that I'd forgotten, but interviews with Hollywood A-listers and, of course, encounters uh, with politicians in the modern era and just stuff about growing up and how he ended up being so successful so early. Um, But crucially, it's fundamentally about uh, being a broadcaster in Britain in this era, but obviously his career has spanned such a long period, despite the fact that he's still very young as far as news anchors go. So this is just um, a great evening in the company of someone who can just talk so well. So entertainingly and just with such crystal clear clarity, they're just completely inspiring. So I'm now going to shut up and leave you in the uh, just in the company of a phenomenal guest, Krishnan Guru. Oh, and of course, before that, um, a bit of stand up about another astonishing fortnight in British and Scottish politics. But what a wonderful fortnight it has been in British and specifically Scottish politics with the complete implosion of the SNP. I mean, where to start with what has gone on up there? It's absolutely insane. Humza Youssef is the bookie's favourite to be the next First Minister of Scotland. He's the frontrunner. Um, I'm not saying he's gaff-prone, but I don't know if you've seen the clip of him with a group of Ukrainian women uh, in Scotland this week. He meets a group of Ukrainian women in Edinburgh has a photo with them, and literally says this on camera, waits till right at the end of the conversation, he goes just one question on my mind. Um, Where are all the men? (laughs) Where the fuck do you think they are, Hamza? (laughs) What a stupid, like, it's it's like literally with them for minutes. At no point does he think, of course, God, don't say that. You know the biggest news story on the planet, Hamza? That's where they are, mate, of course, one question. I mean, don't send him to. Imagine you'd like send up to an AM meeting, going right. I'll get the first round then. He's <laughs> not bad here. What's the matter? Imagine if he becomes Scotland's first minister. Fucking hell! Imagine sending that guy around the world. But it's great to be here and to meet the Amazonian tribes people. I just got one question. Where are all your clothes? What's the matter? What is that with you guys here? Eh? my god What Belfast funny old place what's with all the peens
0: <laughs> is that a thing you do
1: is that graffiti should we get rid of that it's just one of his leading supporters put a tweet and this is like one of his allies said I'm supporting Humza to be the next first minister he is no more out of his debt than the other two <laughs> god, sorry, I can't put that on a leaflet hey look the other two are thick as shite and so see he. okay so look, don't leave Humza out of this But the new First Minister will not be able to stay. You may may know this, the Scottish at Number 10 Downing Street is Butte House where the First Minister gets to live, the official residence. But the new First Minister will not be able to stay there for months because the building is falling apart. They'll have to stay in a hotel. I mean if I worked in whatever hotel the new First Minister gets to stay in, I would wind them up on a daily basis. Would you like a wake-up call, First Minister? Yes, please. You've ruined the country and you're not going to get (laughs) independent. But um, of course, one of the biggest stories uh, across the UK has been the policy of stopping the boats, uh, to use the uh, government phrase. You may have seen Rishi Sunak's press comments about it. sort of bizarre watching Rishi Sunak navigate this policy because he, get, he starts off, and his uh, opening line in this speech said, "It should be the government." I mean, first thing, you need a smaller podium, <laughs> because that, mate, every time he's sort of peeking over the top. You're like someone do him a favour, peeking over this thing. And he goes, uh, he goes, it should be the government who decide who comes into our country, not criminal gangs. You're like, no one disagrees with that, Rishi. <laughs> no one is saying, actually, I think you made such a mess of it. Why don't we give the criminal gangs a go? <laughs> he comes out with something else as well. He ke- What's amazing about this government, and obviously Boris Johnson did this and has trusted it, but watching the Cameron May but Johnson. So the fifth Tory Prime Minister since 2010. Constantly attacked their own record without... He says, in the last two years alone, the amount of people entering the UK by small boat has quadrupled. You're like, you've been in charge, mate. Don't act like you weren't aware. In fact, you know, the last two years, there's only four months when he's not been either Chancellor or Prime Minister. He's actually had the top two jobs in the British state. For, absolutely. you like Elon Musk going, oh, God. The last nine months have been... The, Twitter's gone to shit in the last nine months. Went to at my hands on the guy that's grinned it. No one knows what it sounds like, so... Just do a generic South African accent. Occasionally call someone a beatify. That seems to be enough. Um. This whole press conference is absolutely chilling about people, they will not be allowed, if you come into this country illegally, you will never be allowed to have legal asylum here. Like, it's full on, really scary stuff. It's basically, he's saying all the stuff that Farage says, just in a more polite way. I mean, literally, word for word. It, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if we would got to the end of it and gone, look, they're coming here for our jobs, then they'll take out women. Can someone get me a pint of Spitfire before the EU bans the stuff?
0: <laughs>
1: but of course, the biggest fallout, of the small boats policy uh, was, uh, well, the biggest casualty, of course, was Match of the Day uh, two Saturdays ago, which didn't exist. It was replaced by Premier League highlights. People sent into an absolute tailspin by Gary Lineker going on Twitter and just saying, oh, the language being used is not dissimilar from the uh, 1930s. I mean, even just the phrase, not dissimilar, it's just like, it's such a polite way of dealing with the issue. People went absolutely batshit. Firstly, he's a sports presenter. Secondly, he didn't do it on air. It's not like he was trying to sort of weave it into match of the day. Arsenal very strong there defensively, Alan, and uh, nothing getting through the channels. So not dissimilar from Alan McGrathson, <laughs> but I don't think Shearer would get it. No, no, you're not right, Gary, no. Saka's been up and down the channel all afternoon, I don't know. <laughs> Never mind. It's, it's, it's the sort of thing I thought when he came back he might try and... Anyway, talk of being on the south coast of England, bereft of hope, it's Bournemouth against South <laughs> But he didn't go for it, and I think we're all poor as a result of that. Uh, Keir Starmer was livid. I don't know if you saw the Prime Minister's questions after it. And obviously he's trying to make it about the Tory links to the BBC, but he couldn't hide how just genuinely annoyed he was. And at one point he goes, can the Prime Minister confirm that no Tory MP or anyone connected to the Tory party lobbied to make sure that Match of the Day was not on last weekend? So it like was just genuinely annoyed Match of the Day wasn't on. Mr. Speaker, she me, an hour and a half. It was 20 minutes with no <laughs> commentary. But the Prime Minister apologised to working people who got to dominoes in, only for the... <laughs> the show was ended before the pizza arrived. <laughs> What's been remarkable, actually, is the government just doubled down on the whole thing, and Suella Braverman has put out a video today. You may have seen the photo of her. Uh, delighted to be in Rwanda. And uh, she's put out a video. She's also given a, 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 an interview where she said that people should visit Rwanda before they make snobbish comments about it. Talk- you would have to go there to have a, an opinion on the immigration policy. Like, that's just mad. So I say, no, 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 don't be a snob about Borstal. You do a five stretch and you might like it. <laughs> then she does this video, where, and I have to say what's bizarre about it. I don't know if you've seen it. Go, go on the Home Office uh, Twitter page if you want to see it. And it's her talking to camera, she's in Kigali. And she's genuinely delighted. And she says it, she says, I'm delighted to be here today in Kigali. And I I hate to admit this, my first impression was, actually, she's quite a good TV presenter. (laughs) She's really natural in front of the camera. So it's got a sort of place in the sun sort of vibe about it. So What am I about to watch? This week, we catch up with a couple of Syrian refugees who want to swap their life in Britain for a detention centre in Rwanda. Of course, it's got everything a young child would want, cold running water, partial shelter and temperamental armed guards. And look at the view! Look at the way the sun kisses the sky there and just off in the distance, you can see the President's proxy army annexing parts of the Congo. We'll try the Old Town, a lovely place for a spot of lunch where you can see the police rounding up dissidents and gay people. So, guys, you've seen everything Rwanda has to offer. What would you like? if You want to go back to Syria? You fucking snobs. But of course, uh, one of the claims she's made, by the way, she says, "You know when someone makes a claim and they haven't worded it right and it actually makes you more suspicious?" says Rwanda is one of the world's most safe countries. Like, why are you saying that? Unless it's not. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't need to say Rwanda's great. Look at it. You could, there was a video to be made where you did a tour of Rwanda and you go, okay, that's quite good PR. It's one of the world's most safe countries. I googled it. I mean, saying that, it's one of the world's safest countries immediately. You know, sometimes that's not a phrase... Putting, it, putting the word safest in there makes me worry. Because you realise that's an issue. If you say, look, I'm going to walk you home through one of London's safest alleyways. Let me cook a dinner for you. It's one of the safest dishes I make. Why have you put the word in there? I would never have expected it. (laughs) AUKUS! My God, I can't believe I wasn't going to mention this. Uh, We are part of a uh, trilateral uh, security relationship with Australia and the United States called AUKUS where we're going to collaborate on uh, things like nuclear submarines. And the three of them, so Biden, Albanese and Rishi Sunak, do like a a three-way press conference, three podiums next to each other on what looks like an aircraft carrier, it's very like George W. Bush. And uh, there's sort like of flags in the background. You're like, this is absolutely, it looks the bollocks. You're like, wow, this is great. Biden comes out first. And just before they get to the podium, it's a really sunny day, there's three of them. Biden slips on a pair of aviators. <laughs> you, think, you clever bastard. He looks so cool just like the aviators on. And the other two are like, oh, you piece of shit. And, uh, I mean, Rishi in aviators. <laughs> That's right, motherfuckers. Yeah, we're going to blow shit up. <laughs> this is the problem. Like, Biden does all that, like, the big... It's about defending our way of life. About our allies. Looking after the world.
0: Come on.
1: All that sort of thing. And then Albanese does that. It gets to Rishi. He's like... oh, he's like, oh my. He feels like... Every time I watch Rishi I think he thinks... You know like those Netflix Christmas films? He's like the sort of... Prime Minister you would get in a Netflix Christmas film. <laughs> it's exactly the sort of promise the Americans think we have. Charlotte, you are my first love. Move in with me to Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Man. He, uh, one of the th- he, he, what I do love, actually, there is, it's, a, it's a sort of quaint British thing that some politicians do, when they're on, like, the world stage, and the whole world is on, like, an aircraft carrier, and they'll mention quite small British places. So next to the American president, he goes, And these submarines will be partially built in Barrow and Derby. (laughs) I must be thinking, Derby, I've heard of that place, it's like Nottingham, but not as good. (laughs) Just so, obviously what they want the presidents to do, I mean, imagine Trump gets in again and starts saying, we're going to defend our country with beautiful missiles building (laughs) stock. They love getting, like, the twee little Englishness into those things. Um, but one issue that came up at Promises Questions a few weeks ago uh, was the issue of sex education, how appropriate it is and the nature of it. And you just think, I would love Keir Starmer to use all six questions at Promises Questions this week to ask Rishi Sunak about sex education. <laughs> Can the Prime Minister confirm he knows how to put a condom onto a cucumber, Mr. Speaker? Yeah, of course I can, and I've got a cucumber, which actually smaller than the thing I usually use. But, um, and does anyone know, do I have to squeeze the teeth first? Now it's my job to ask the questions, it's his job to answer them, Mr. Speaker. Can the Prime Minister tell the country, is it healthy to masturbate? And if so, how often is it true? Like boys in the year above have been telling me, Mr. Speaker, that <laughs> if you do it too often, you can go blind. Well, the Honourable Member of Bridge assures me that it's perfectly healthy to do it all day long, and if anything, it improves your productivity. Uh, order! Order! No, I'm not having it. No, okay, okay. Order! No, settle down. No, no, no. Who's calling him a virgin? No, that's not Parliamentary. <laughs> oh, he's got two kids, so he's done it at least twice as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Perfectly fine. But, uh, can, can the Prime Minister, you don't go blind, do you? I'm asking for a friend. Uh. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by a true titan of British broadcasting tonight. Someone that I idolised growing up, as many people who grew up on the liberal left in this country. Not that you know it from my Twitter following. Um, but, or uh, some the mentions I get, but as someone who grew up on the liberal left in this country, watching Channel 4 News was a huge part of re- what really turned me on to news to politics, to broadcasting, and there's one presenter that stood out above all those and it's tonight's guest, someone who's always been able to present the news in a way that's humorous when it's required, and one of the most intelligent, charismatic and wonderful presenters that we have in this country. Please welcome a true national treasure, Krishnan Guru Mercy! Thank you very much. Well, Christian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. This is for me. It is, yes. Thank God for that. (laughs) Was it a a good show? It
2: was a busy show. There's so much going on at the moment. Um, You know, end of the world. (laughs) And and then Boris Johnson's back in Parliament on Wednesday. And there's a lot going on. A lot going on.
1: And does it, I mean, you joke about it being the end of the world, but you've you've been in news long enough now to be able to give us a, a, a sort of broad view. Have the last few years felt particularly apocalyptic? compared to what went before?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, certainly the last year and a half has been um, very, very stressful, I think, for everyone in in news. And and then I suppose going back, you know, to the pandemic, I was looking today, it's, it's exactly three years to the day since I first presented Channel 4 News from my front room because of the pandemic. And I've got a picture of me there, you know, in my front room with the dog and my daughter and this camera. It's so weird looking back, thinking that actually happened. So I think that, that sort of two years of that... and we were pretty strung out, pretty stressed. And then the, the, the chaos and madness of last year in politics, I think, has left us all a bit PTSD. Um, and, uh, and quite exhausted by it all. And, and so when it comes back, you kind of think you're going through a period of relative calm, politically. Um, and, you know, we had Rishi Sunak's Northern Ireland agreement, and, and all, and you kind of think, well, that, that's quite interesting. It's very calm. Nobody's nobody's come out against it. And then, and then today, it all starts falling apart. And the DUP are against it. And tomorrow, the ERG will come out, and who knows what they will say. And then on Wednesday, Boris Johnson's back. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, it's all sort of... We're, we're back to where we were. Do you have a kind of...
1: Is it a double-edged sword for you? Because... It must be such a thrill to cover big news stories. That breaking news must be such an adrenaline-inducing thrill. But on the other hand, you care about what happens to the planet. And I don't know, would you you sometimes rather quieter news weeks, but when it's quiet, you think, oh, man, I hope something big happens. (laughs) No one's going to watch.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, you don't wish for apocalypse or bad things. Um, But when when there's not obvious big stuff going on, you, you know, well, it's a bit challenge because you kind of go, you look around, the news is kind of, there are sort of so many sort of easy, regular routes um, of looking, looking at what other people are doing, what other broadcasters are leading on, what's on the news wires, that's the sort of the agencies like Press Association and Reuters. And you can be quite guided into the same old routes of what the news is by what everybody else is doing. So on those times when it all feels a bit quiet in the usual routes, our job at Channel 4 is to say, well, hang on, we're, we're all about, the people who don't normally get on the news, other countries, other places. So it's kind of looking to see, well, what's going on in the Middle East? What's going on in Asia? You know, can we try and build a, an alternative lead, an alternative story? So it makes it harder work. But that's, that's good, because that's what we're all about.
1: And Channel 4 News is so distinct, really, in the news landscape, when you think about it, uh, and being able to retain that identity. I mean, do you feel that it's like basically Guardian TV?
2: <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I know Guardian TV is the cliché, but no, it's not. I mean, we've got a very specific brief, and it's, it's driven by the remit of Channel 4, which is why we are different, why we've got a different mandate, and we do have a particular remit to challenge established thinking, to be a forum for debate, to, um, to give voice to the unheard, to cover the stories and the parts of the world that's, that aren't being covered elsewhere, you know, as, as well as Channel 4 News, I, I do a programme that's called Unreforced World. You know, the clue is in the title. So that's what we are all, that's, that's why we are what we are. And, and, and what that means, I think, inevitably, is that we are, we also have a, you know, a stronger drive to try and cover issues uh, that young people are, uh, are interested in, which will tend to be, the, you know, the noisier, troublesome, Whether it's, whether it's climate or identity or all of those sorts of things that are difficult. That's why Channel 4 News is a bit noisier, I think, because it's, our, it's literally our remit to go off and do those things.
1: And you've been noisier perhaps in that part of the landscape, but now there are new entrants to the market that are noisier on the other side, yeah. really. You've got GB News and Talk TV. Is there a part of you that respects what they're doing or trying to do? Um...
0: <laughs> I mean,
2: no. I mean, I... Um, I, I mean, I, I actually gave a speech uh, some months ago about what what I saw as the dangers of these organisations. Now, that's, this is not to say that th- there are lots of talented people working at these organisations. Some of my friends have gone to work there.
1: Some um, of my best friends. Some of my best friends and
2: former Channel Four News staff, uh, you know, are, are there as well. So, um, so this is not about the individuals there or their motivations. But I think what is going on with these news organisations, and I say that in inverted commas because it's not clear what they are, um, you know, is that they they look like the news, they um, sound like the news, they use all the tropes and the, and, and the, the vocabulary of a news channel and of the news, but they're, they're doing it very differently and they're coming at it with an agenda. They, they, um, they're hiring very, very different kinds of people. I mean, Ofcom, uh, the Ofcom chief executive was questioned by MPs last week about the fact that, um, these channels are employing serving politicians which appears to be against the Ofcom rules. The Ofcom rules are quite clear that say politicians shouldn't act as presenters and interviewers in news programs. Um, and the Ofcom chief executive said it was worse to the effect of well it's not clear that they're news programs. Well, yeah, okay, well g- now we're getting somewhere. Um, <laughs> It's not clear that they're news programmes. So we need to establish what they are. I don't, you know, no, no one wants to silence anyone. I mean, m- more entrance into the media market, absolutely fine. If Jacob Rees-Mogg wants to hold a chat show, that's absolutely fine. But we just need to be very clear about what it is. It's not, it's not news. Uh, and so it's not the same thing as what we are doing or any of the regulated public service broadcasters where we have a regulated duty to be fair and impartial, duly impartial. Um, and they do as well, they, they will say, if you're unregulated, you know, if you're, if you're on TV, you've got, you, we're subject to Ofcom rules as well. But it's clear that they are trying to do something different. Um, and just by having, you know, people on the right, uh, predominantly um, hosting these shows, uh, you know, they've, they've got an agenda, it would seem to me. And people like, uh, you know, Nigel Farage, who's, you know, charismatic, talented broadcaster, But is he coming back to politics? It's not clear to me whether GB News is kind of a home for him before in between elections. You know, is he going to come back and front um, the Reform Party once we're back in in an election cycle? And so if we're in a situation where right wing TV channels are basically boosting the profile and the argument and the noise around a certain group of politicians who then take that profile and use it in elections, then I think think we just need to be very transparent about what it is and we need to be clear with with people and not pretend that it's it's something it's not. Because I think it's harder and harder for viewers viewers to tell the difference. You know, the reason I balk at Guardian TV is because the Guardian also has an agenda. It's a news organisation that is under no obligation to be impartial or anything like that. It's a great news organisation, does loads of amazing things, but it does have a clear political agenda. Um, and, And we don't. Regardless of what you think, Um, you know, I'm trying to explain that the reason we might appeal to you in that situation is because our remit means that we covered the things that you were interested in growing up.
1: Nottingham Forest, (laughs) junk food. did, is there any part of you that, or internally in Channel Four, do you assess yourself against your competitors? Do you, do you look at what the BBC does, TV, even if it's just about graphics and how the studio looks? And equally, are there things that you look at Talk TV and GB News and would say, actually, that one thing I would say for Talk TV specifically is, I think the studio looks amazing. Yeah. Because that is visually stunning. Is that? Do you have those sorts of conversations? I mean, talk, talk TV is
2: different as well because it's not a real. It's not. Um, you know. It's not a news channel in the same way as GB News presents itself as a news channel or Yes, Sky But yeah, no, of course we do. We all, we, we all look at what each other are doing. And um, the, thing, the thing that's different, obviously, about those organisations is that they, on the whole, don't go out and gather news. So they are essentially talking about the news. Um, and their journalism is done by getting interviews into their studios or, or, or outside. You know, ours, ICV, Sky News, um, and the BBC have got journalists to go out and try and find stories and report them and talk to people and find out the truth and bring it back. and And so we are news gatherers, uh, and that's the big difference um, in terms of sort of what we are trying to do and what these new entrants are trying to do. Um, and, and what they, you know, what what they're doing is is relatively cheap because it, you know they don't have to. Armed um, teams of people to go out into the field with cameras and pay for hotel rooms and travel and all those sorts of things. So they can afford perhaps to spend a little bit more on the studio. And. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Obviously, the big discussion really has been at the BBC in the last few weeks and months about the impartiality of the BBC, yeah. perceived influence, or, you know, the someone trying to have influence, the government trying to have influence, leaked WhatsApps that show that perhaps the BBC didn't even use the word lockdown because the government didn't want them to. Were you getting WhatsApp messages as well with Channel 4?
2: No, what, trying to tell us what to do? Yeah. No, they don't bother. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I mean, it's funny, because when I was at the BBC, I do remember um, there being that sense of uh, daily influence. Um, when Alistair Campbell would ring up and harangue the 6 o'clock news over the, what the lead story was and why it wasn't Tony Blair's co- um, conference speech. Uh, and that kind of thing. It was but that was all legit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I do think in the sort of the hierarchy, the BBC gets a lot more um, flack from all governments um, than other news organisations. Um, and, 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 and certainly there are constant conversations between our... Um, politics team or maybe senior management and um, you know the press officers of, of, of Downing Street and all the rest of it um, most of it is really just for information about what's happening and where they're going to be and can we have an interview no and can we have you know um, and, uh, and, and all of that but there you know but within that there will be a little bit of to and fro about what they think about our coverage but does it get to be no I mean you know very very rarely you'll get a stroppy message from somebody or other. But I mean, um, not, not not really. But I mean, I, you know, it's a sort of open season on the BBC at the moment in that every little thing gets turned into a while well, they buckled under that. You know, the BBC are telling their people not to, you know, not to have TikTok on their mobile phones. That must be government pressure. Um, I suspect it's not. I suspect it's, it's somebody at the BBC going, TikTok's a little bit worrying, isn't it? And what, what should we do about that? Um, so I don't know. It's a, it's a difficult one and w- they did mess it up, obviously. But I mean, yeah, yeah. what do you week.
1: think they should have done?
2: Um, well, uh, for me, there's a there's a really obvious difference between news and current affairs people and people who aren't and there always have been and, and, and as became obvious to everybody last week, cause it was all being covered. There are loads and loads of experience uh, loads and loads of examples of people who work in broadcasting, who are known political actors, or have got strong opinions on things, whether it's Alan Sugar or Karen Brady or, you know, whoever it might be. And the fact that they hold these views doesn't really matter. And the fact that I know that Gary Lineker was against Brexit and has refugees staying in his house, I don't see that that really has any impact on what I think about the BBC's journalism. So I think there's an obvious distinction. The BBC blurred the line for some reason. I don't quite know why they decided to bring everybody in to their definition without actually bringing everybody into their definition because they didn't apply it to anybody else. They only applied it to, to Gary Lineker. So I don't quite know why they did that um, other than just confusion and panic, which is quite, I think it, that can happen at that level. If you're getting loads and loads of flack, you're in the middle of a media storm, you've got politicians ringing you up, newspapers ringing you up. I can understand a little bit of panic creeps in.
1: And what's your view of the BBC? Do you um, effectively cherish it uh, as a citizen? Um, Do you also see it as a rival? Is there part of you that kind of (laughs) enjoys the periodic uh, self-flagellation that the BBC goes through uh, every few years? I mean, or or are you a fan of it? All of the
2: above. I mean, you know, I, I worked for the BBC for 10 years. It's an incredible institution. If you travel around the world as much as I do and have to, you know, experience what state TV is around the world... Um, the BBC is not state TV, it's just, it's, it's just a national broadcaster that we all pay for. And, and because we all pay for it, we all care about it. We've all got an opinion and we can get angry about it and we can love our favourite programme and get furious with them when, when, when they make a mistake in our eyes. And it's because we all pay for it that we can all get furious about it. And I'm, I'm right within that group as well. On top of that, I might get angry over sort of journalistic rivalry or why are they getting access to this? Why aren't they doing that? You know, why aren't they covering this particular story? Why aren't they challenging the government on X, Y and Z? Um, so, so within journalism, I might get sort of irri- you know, irritated on individual levels. Um, but, but basically, the BBC is an absolute unique organisation that we should all treasure. It's incredible value for money. I mean, I pay a ridiculous amount of money for my Sky subscription, you know, 80 quid a month or something. And that's not even for the top package.
1: Um, but you've got your films and, and your and you sport. <laughs>
2: And, Surely for that. Well, no, because it's one of those things where the longer you go on, the more that your thing creeps up and you don't get the deal. That Threaten to gets. leave. I, yeah, I have done that, actually, <laughs> as well. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, what, what, what I'm saying is I pay infinitely more for Sky than I do for the BBC. The BBC's is fantastic value for money. Um, and so, so, you know, I, I do cherish it, and I do enjoy it as well when they... Get into trouble (laughs) with (laughs) it because they are rivals, and and you know, and also there might be a boss who you knew 20 years ago who you're quite enjoying watching screw up his
1: (laughs) own career. Anyone in particular?
2: (laughs) I wouldn't mention any names (laughs) tonight.
1: Because Channel Four periodically, or they
2: sacked your friend or whatever it might (laughs) be. You know, there there are grudges in the media, obviously.
1: That of course, quite
2: quite happy to continue.
1: Periodically, Channel 4 does. If it's not the BBC getting it, then it is Channel 4. And uh, there was the threat of privatisation a few years ago. That feels like that's gone away. I don't, I don't know what that's... It has. Well, it has. It has
2: gone away. Um, yeah, the government has said that uh, they don't think privatisation is the answer anymore, or this government. I mean, you know, it, it went away because the government changed, essentially. We got a new Secretary of State, and she looked at things very differently. She'd worked in the media before. Um, and she listened to the arguments that were really to do with business um, and that, uh, that were about the damage that would be done to small businesses if Channel 4 were to be, um, you know, privatised in the way it was going to be. And, and just decided to go a different way and they, they, they you know, they, they called it all off. So, so yes, and I, th- I think and, and the hope is that we now have some stability for... The foreseeable future, because it comes back. You know, it's, I think it's the third time since I've been there that we've had the threat of privatisation, and then, and then the, the government has decided not to. And it, uh, it's, it's all, you know, it, it's been different conservative governments over the years, and um, which is odd because it was a conservative government that created Channel Four. Uh, it was Margaret Thatcher as a very sort of pro-business um, incubator of creative talent. Um, and so I think the hope is now that it's, it's, it's gone away for the foreseeable. Um, and uh, I, you know, it, it, it could always come back in a manifesto, you never know, but I'd be surprised if they wanted to go there.
1: As well as the quality of the broadcast journalism uh, on Channel 4 News, one of the great things about it is the theme tune. Yes. <laughs> it is, it's got to be one of the best theme tunes in the world. Uh, are you sick of hearing it? Or, or each time you hear it, do you get a rush of adrenaline? I mean is it your ringtone?
2: <laughs> no, it's my it's not my ringtone. Bizar- my ringtone is actually what is now the, the uh, it's a public enemy song which is
1: harder than you think.
2: Harder than you think. And it was actually my my theme tune before the last leg made it their theme tune. So it's just slightly annoying that they made it their <laughs> theme tune. Um, but uh no I I yeah, of course the theme tune makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up because it's the thing that happens when I know I'm going on air. Uh it's the thing that happens in my nightmares when I, I have the... Um, there's a recurring dream that a lot of presenters have, which is that you're late to the studio. Um, and I had it for a long time. And um, I haven't had it for a while, touch wood. But, um, but yeah, I used to have this recurring uh, dream that I was trying to get to um, the studio and it was through lots of flights of stairs. And then you hear the theme tune <laughs> and you're not in the studio. Um, and, it, you know, and then you wake up, and, um, and it's terrifying. And um, so, no, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And I, I play it, i played it, I've recorded my own version at home. I sing along to it. Um, what, you made up lyrics? They're quite simple lyrics. I mean, I have, I have actually sung them on a stage like this before, um, for, for comment relief, I think it was. Um, so what are the lyrics?
1: Uh, and how does
2: it go? How does it go? Well, I, <laughs> can you sing it, please? I, <laughs> I would need the theme tune. I don't know. Can I find the theme tune? Um, I, I, I think uh, I actually have a... Uh,
0: uh, uh, I, have a I, have, I might have a video of
2: it, actually, um, if, you, if you'll indulge me one second. Absolutely. Um, because I actually did it for a friend of mine.
1: We'd like um, you to sing it live, I think. is, the, is Oh, the dear.
2: Okay. Well, no, it's very straightforward. Um, okay. It's... Um, it's here's the news, all the news. It's the news. Here's the news. Channel Four News. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know sometimes you might change it around a little bit just for that sort of creative spark, but it's basically that sort of you know ingredient.
1: Yeah. Man, that was so cool. <laughs> Channel Four News, the musical. Yeah. Why has no one thought of it? So. Um, do you have a lot of nightmares? Sorry? Do you have a lot of nightmares?
2: A lot of ni- No, I don't. I used to have that one, and I've had the other one, of the falling one that we've all had, <laughs> of running along and falling, but I don't,
1: I don't really have any now, I don't think. I know that you talk about the hairs on the back of the neck doing live news. Are there any particular news days that you remember? Any particular stories you've broken or days that you've reported on that really stick in the memory?
2: There were a lot. I mean, you know, to be honest, until the last, you know, Few years, I think my my career on Channel Four News was often very sadly framed by you know by terrible things happening, you know big um, attacks, militant attacks. Um, whether it was uh, you know the nail bomber, um, you know in, in Soho, I, I was on that day, or um, 9/11, or the Mumbai attacks, I had to fly out and do those, or my very first. Um, so sort a of couple of weeks at, uh, at Channel 4 News, we had the OMA bombing um, in Northern Ireland. Um, and I, I, so I was in OMA for the first few days of my of my career there. So it's been very strange actually thinking about that over the years. This sort is of for 20 years, the sort of the big moments. And, and they, they were defining in so many ways, obviously, because after 9-11, the next 20 years of our news cycle was defined by what happened after that. Um, whether it was Afghanistan or Iraq and the Middle East and the Arab Spring and all those sorts of things, so I've had amazing time. You know, I was sort of, you know, being in Cairo, um, you know, when uh, you know the Arab Spring was happening and uh, you know the crowds in Tahrir Square and uh, you know those sorts of nights are, you know, unforgettable. They're amazing experiences, but they all they all seem to come within. This arc of um, of international terrorism, and um, you know, again, sort of touch wood. We, you know, we've had a we've had a you know a mercifully calm few years, relatively, um, on on you know in, in that respect, um, and we've entered a very very different phase. You know, in in, in sort of in news terms, of sort of uh, you know war being a very different. Uh, you know, y- Ukraine obviously having a, you know, a t- being part of a totally different arc um, and almost is the return of what was before, which was sort of big geopolitics um, and and the Cold War and the, the way we used to think about the world before this kind of terrible period between sort of 2001 um, and, and perhaps, tw- you know, 2021, where uh, so much of our news cycle was defined by. You know, Al-Qaeda, al- what George Bush called the war against terror, you know, and everything that flowed from it.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at
1: mintmobile.com. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about that, actually, because it, it, not that this has never dawned on me before, but we've all lived through that period. But as consumers of news, we can choose to turn the telly off or not read that particular article. You also have to go to these places and witness them firsthand. Incredible personal experiences that you've had. I just wonder if seeing those things up close, and the manner in which you have for a prolonged period of time has affected your worldview or your view of humanity.
2: Um, I don't. I don't I mean, I'm sure it has because everything that we go through obviously shapes who we are. Um, but I, I'm not sure I'm conscious of what it is. I think I'm quite I'm a curious, I was thinking about this earlier today, that I, I'm a sort of strange mixture of pessimist and optimist. I think I am basically quite pessimistic. Um, you know, I sort of, I always, um, in, in conversation, I, people say, well, what do you think is going to happen? And I always go to the worst scenario. You know, I'm a nightmare with my friends, and they say, you know, can you tell me it's all going to be OK? And I go, well, I don't think it is. And, <laughs> um, and you know, I was going to get really going, "What do you think it's going to be that? I say, it's going to be much worse than that, you know? and. Um, so, but I think I kind of do that almost as sort of a test against myself. You know, that sort of it's not that it's not going to be that bad because I think in, in human terms, I'm, um, I'm quite optimistic about people. i sort of even though I've met some of the worst people in the world, um, thank you very much. I think, <laughs> 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 and uh, and I've interviewed quite a few of them, and um, I'm quite I'm quite positive and optimistic about human nature and I think people are are, are um, essentially quite good um, and I believe in that sort of force of positivity and, and that, that, that people will naturally try and uh, make things better on the whole even though they find themselves in terrible terrible situations um, and can do terrible things to each other. Um, you know I kind of think even in, even even in war situations where you talk to you know, young, usually men about you know what they're doing. You you can reach the humanity of people quite quickly, just by asking them how they are um, or how they feel about what it is they're doing. So even if they are doing terrible things, I mean I've done that. I've done that on the you know I, I I sort of been on I went on a sort of a tank front line, not really the in in Syria. So it's not not a front line in the sense of people know you know, uh, you know sh- uh, fighting at close quarters but a front line where they're firing artillery at each other um, and talking to these groups of very young men 19, 20, 21, in the Syrian army who were doing terrible things you know because I spent most of my time in Syria sort of driving through these terrible destroyed cities Homs hammer um, Aleppo these sorts of places but if you talk to even young young people who are doing that you can find their humanity quite easily. So that's actually made me, in a way, sort of quite optimistic about people in the human race.
1: And thinking of some of the appalling people you've had to interview, (laughs) do any stick in the mind? Have you ever, not struggled to control yourself, because obviously you're such a professional uh, interviewer and broadcaster, but are there some that you found it hard to set opposite an individual?
2: Uh, No, I mean, no, because actually if you ever get into a situation where you were opposite somebody who, who is who has done terrible things or is doing terrible things or is a, you know is a political manipulator or whatever it's 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 so exciting to be in that situation to be able to challenge them um that you know that's what you you know you're you're caring about um trying to ask the right question do the right thing you know whether whether it's and i don't mean he's he's a terrible person but you know <laughs> just the one that comes to mind for some reason, I don't know, if, if you're talking to Donald Trump, um, or whatever it might be, you know, you're, you're not going to sit there thinking, well, you've done this, that, and the other, and you're about to be indicted. or You're thinking, what's the good question to ask? Um, or if you, you know, I interviewed one, one of the first sort of bad people, I suppose, in inverted commas I interviewed was when I was very young, as a student, and I was sent to Sri Lanka to interview the president. And he'd been accused of all sorts of atrocities, and I was only 19, I think. Um, and... So, but just sort of sitting there, being able to say, but you're accused of this, that, and the other, um, that's great. So you're, you're not going to sit there going, oh, I want to, you know, I want to shoot him. You're going to think, you know, this is, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to be in this situation.
1: And you were, I mean, you talk about interviewing the leader of Lanka at 19. You were presenting TV way before that. Uh, your first break was on Deaf 2's Open to Question when you were, I mean, what, like 15 or something? Well, I
2: was on it when I was 15. Um, but I, Open to Question was a, was a show that used to invite about 60 teenagers to grill a public figure. And so I was one of those teenagers, grilling a single public figure. Um, and then I became the presenter of that show when I was 18, um, in my year off, um, <laughs> between school and university. But, so, first
1: thing, how do you get in the room as a 15-year-old? Have they put an ad out saying, we want opinionated young people? No, they.
2: what they used to do is they used to recruit from debating competitions, and I did a lot of school debating, and I did... The Observer newspaper used to run a schools debating competition, which I took part in, and I got to the final. And so, I think they literally just kind of invited everybody who was at the final to come up and do, do one of these shows, because they used to invite schools to, you know, send along eight or ten kids or whatever it is, and they would want people they could rely on to be a bit lippy. So they would recruit from these debating competitions. And so I went up and I I was predictably um, annoying and, and loud. And they, so they said, oh, well, that's good. We can rely on him to always have a question. So they then kept, invited me back and I went and back and did about six or seven shows over two or three years, or three years, I think, um, because they knew that if it dried up, they could just go Christian um, and I would have something to say. And, and funnily enough, the presenter of that show was a guy called John Nicholson, who is now the SNP's culture spokesman.
1: Yes, and he, w- he was at Newsnight for a bit. Yeah, presented um,
2: Breakfast News and all sorts of things.
1: yeah. So, it, it, you're in the audience and then you're so good at it, you end up presenting the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, that... <laughs> that's like...
2: Well, there was very... I mean, what? when I think back to it, it was a very gutsy decision by this sort of uh, head of department, a guy called David Martin. It, it was made in BBC Scotland, and... Um, yeah, I mean, very, very rare. Because it was, I was 18 with my own show, basically at 6:30 <laughs> on BBC Two. It's totally unheard of, um, and he just took a chance. You know, so ha- you know, it would that, I, would, I can't imagine that happening now. Um, but, it's, but especially in those days, I think individual TV executives used to have a lot more power um, than they did. And e- even within Channel Four News, I was having lunch with one of our reporters today, and we were talking about how decisions get made. Um, You know, these days, the bosses are all over big decisions of who gets what job on air and all those sorts of things. So you've got to you've got to be able to get on with bosses. And um, but when I first got the job, the bosses at Channel 4 didn't want me. Um, They actually opposed my my appointment because Channel 4 News is made by ITN, which is a production company, uh, which people don't realise and it's commissioned by Channel 4. And the editor of Channel 4 News wanted me to uh, to come on board as a presenter because we'd worked together on Newsnight and the bosses at Channel 4 didn't really want me. And I didn't know this until six weeks later when the then uh, director of programmes wrote to the editor and said, you were right, I was wrong, he's all right, you know.
0: <laughs>
2: it's <all> right. <laughs> so it's amazing to think that actually in those days, individual executives had quite a lot of power.
1: And just thinking about open to questions, he grilled public figures. Do any of them stick in the memory?
2: Um. That well, when I was in the audience, we, we used to get all sorts of people. I mean, uh, I spoke to King Hussein of Jordan, uh, Lord Fit Jerry Fitz. I thought it was be uh, like Gaza. <laughs> uh, no, these were politicians, um, you know, American politicians and all sorts of all, all sorts of people I mean the, the famous one from that the famous ones were um, actually Billy Connolly did one that was famous and got extended to an hour on BBC two and it was very funny. Um, Neil Kinnock. It, it was good because basically it was kids and we, used to, we were encouraged to ask cheeky questions uh, and to ask the kinds of questions that professional interviewers might not ask. So when Neil Kinnock came along, someone puts their hand up and says, why do you think they call you the Welsh windbag? <laughs> and that's the kind of question that you just wouldn't normally get. And, and so when I did it, um, my very first programme was with Jimmy Savile, um, which was a... Well, exactly, yeah, it was not a pleasant experience, I have to say. I mean, he was he was creepy as hell and not at all friendly and weird, frankly. And and the kids saw straight through him. Yes. Um and in, in the audience. And uh, cuz we forget now, but Jimmy Savile used to brag about all the sexual conquests he hid in plain sight. You know, so he used to do tabloid articles about how I slept with hundreds of women and blah blah blah. Um and so the kids just kind of grilled him on on this and his sort of his personal life and his double standards and his sexual morality and his religion. he used to claim that he was very religious, that he was a Catholic—and so they would say, "Well, you say you're a Catholic. Well, how can you square that with sleeping with hundreds of girls? And what would you do if you got one of them pregnant?" I think the truth that he was talking to these sort of 16, 17-year-old girls. I remember one saying, "What would you?" She did ask him, "What would you do if you, uh, if one of the young, you know, the girls you you slept with got pregnant?" And he just kind of. Um, replied, you know, I'd shout, who, who, whose was it, my dear, as I boarded the train to Newcastle? And, and it was all just, like, unpleasant and, and creepy, and, but very revealing in retrospect. And we actually, so revealing, we ran about six or seven minutes of it on Channel 4 News when the scandal broke, because I, I, I was just talking to the bosses going, this is so, you know, weird that we went through this. Because um, everybody remembers the, um, the Louis Theroux programme about... Jimmy Savile. And some people remember Andrew Neil interviewing um, Jimmy Savile and that being quite revealing as well. But um, it was only relatively recently that people picked up on the Open to Question um, episode and actually made it into the Netflix documentary, um, the, the two-parter. And I, I'm not sure what's happened, but I was asked permission for the, my video to be used in the BBC dramatisation with Steve Coogan. Yes. Because they were going to redo Open Question in which Steve Coogan was going to act in it and they were going to reuse the, the video. I don't know what happened to it or whether it actually got done. Because
1: it's fascinating with him I- in terms of how he was able to inveigle himself to the establishment, the prime minister of the time, you know, the TV establishment. As a kid watching him, I never liked him. He creeped the hell out of me. I liked Jim Will Fix It as a show, because I thought dreams come true on yeah. the show. But I never... Even as a child, there was something, you know, even when you're like seven, you don't know what you mean by it, you just, I found it deeply unsettling. Are well, I, re- I remember face-to-face? writing,
2: I've, I mean, I, I've never written to a TV programme. Well, I haven't <laughs> written to a... But the one TV programme I'd written to was Jim Fixum.
1: And what did you ask? I, I, I was a big
2: Starsky and Hutch fan. <laughs> uh, so I, 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 think I, I think I wrote to Jim, Jimmy Savile and asked if I could be a detective for a day. Um, so that I could bust him. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no. Um, obviously I, I never heard anything, but it was very odd because it was, it was weirdly disappointing because he was the only person I'd ever written to and the only show I'd ever wanted to be on before weirdly being invited to do Open to Question. And, um, and he was pretty vile.
1: And on that day when, when he's on Open to Question, because a lot of people say actually, and reading that book in plain sight, you realise, how violent he was at a very young age when he's involved in uh, nightclubs up north and stuff. Did he try and intimidate you in any way?
2: He... Well, I don't think he did before the programme because I think that he hadn't really realised what was going to happen. I think he was quite taken aback by the aggression of the questions. Um, beforehand, he just didn't... He kind of ignored me. You know, I, I met him in makeup. We'd, we'd, we'd sent a Rolls-Royce to pick him up um, from the station or the <coughs> airport. I can't remember. I think it was probably the airport, because it was in Glasgow. And I remember th- David Martin, the guy who'd hired me, um, the late da- David Martin, he said, it, oh, you i going to put Jimmy in a good mood. We're sending a white Rolls Royce to pick him up. Um, and he, he just arrived, and, he, and, and, I, and I was very excited. It was my first program. And I said, oh, Jimmy, it's great, honest, meet you, blah, blah, blah. It's actually my first program uh, as a presenter, and, you know, as, and, it, and he just and interested he just went all oh, right okay and and kind of got on with it it was only afterwards he tried to intimidate us in that he was quite taken aback by the way he'd been treated and he rang the sun newspaper and briefed them that um you know he'd been set up in some way by the bbc and ambushed by this audience of teenagers who'd been primed against him and so he got his attack in on the program before it could go out on the day of broadcasting which I was aghast about, because you know, it was my first TV program. It was on air, and you know, there was a piece in the Sun newspaper about how terrible I was. You know, nothing's changed.) <laughs> it's,
1: it's such a whirlwind rise to be sort of a regular audience member on a show like that when you're getting to speak, and then you're presenting it at 18. You grew up in the northwest of England, and then a couple of years later, yeah. you're a TV star and you've not been off our screens ever since. I mean, did, did it at the time, did you think, oh my God, this is happening very quick?
2: Yeah, I didn't really believe it. I was going to be a doctor. I had a place at medical school. Right. And um, my dad's a doctor. My dad's here somewhere. Um, my, my dad, I think, is the oldest serving consultant in the NHS. He's 89. Wow. And he's, still um, but, um, he's, been a, he's been a consultant for 50 years. Um, I was going to ask Boris Johnson if I could give him a knighthood, but... Um...
1: <laughs> well, I'm sure we can figure all out for Mr... Uh, uh, yeah. Gary <laughs> Murphy's dad!
2: <clears throat> By the
1: way, he was here... Yes! The uh, Yes. I yes. <laughs> We well, Play the recording, people might believe it in the future. Yeah.
2: Uh, no, so I didn't really believe, it. I thought it was just a bit of fun I was doing for, you know, for a few months. Couldn't really believe this was actually a career. And it was only after I've been doing it for a, a, a few months that I thought, actually, this is brilliant. I really want to do this. So I changed my degree from medicine to politics, philosophy and economics. And uh, and then sort of still went to university and worked all the way through university and, and carried on.
1: And doing PPE, obviously, for a lot of people is a, a gateway into... Being a special advisor, being an MP, becoming prime minister—being well, a prime
2: minister. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> was
1: it? Did politics ever occur to you? Do you ever think, actually, I, I, sort of obviously interest? As a
2: kid, yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, um, it's very weird talking about it, as, you know, as if that was a sort of viable conversation. But if you bear in mind that I became a journalist when I was eighteen, so yeah, as a kid, I, you know, I was very political and always imagined at university I would be a student politician or be in the Oxford Union or. You know, do, do all of that kind of thing. Um, but basically, the decision was taken. So a week before my A-level results, I got my job on the BBC. So by the time I got to Oxford to, to be a student, I was already a year into my career, and I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And And in those days, you used to get quite a talking to. By the bosses of the bbc about impartiality and about not being political and about you know um you know i I remember my my bosses would sit down and say you know you can never join a political party you can't go to a political meeting you know um or if you do you'll have to resign you'll have to be um you know you'll you'll, you'll have to take a leave of absence during an election and so some people you know people like ben bradshaw labour mp was a bbc reporter and uh took a leave of ab- absence of the election. So, so people have done it but, it, but it was basically sort of drilled into you so that by the time uh, I was working, uh, I had, yeah, politics has gone and that's no longer an option and I was never tribal anyway. I mean, I wasn't really, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't that political in that sense, you know. So, so, so it wasn't that hard for me to say, I, I'm on this side of the fence. And I'm going to stay here. And it's more fun throwing rocks than,
1: <laughs> Getting hit by them. than being hit by them, yeah. So funny to imagine you at a university debating society, again. I'm sorry, I will have to remain impartial. <laughs> uh, but did, we, did you get involved in student journalism as well or not? I mean, no. It's amazing that you basically got the gig. Yeah.
2: No, because I was doing it for real. I mean, I was... I was, I was um... <laughs> people on campus going, oh, my God, it's Christian Garunas. Yeah. Um, well, I was I was widely hated by the student journalists uh, sort of, who would who would write about me in the Oxford newspaper, you know, the student newspapers. Um, but no, but I was, you know, I mean, it was all a bit hateful when I look back at it. But it was also amazing, you know, because I was I was doing a South Asian politics paper and covering the you know one of the first Pakistani elections, interviewing Benazir Bhutto and the head of the army and all of these people, and then writing in my essay, you know, in private conversation, Benazir Bhutto. says... <laughs> blah, 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 you know, to my <laughs> Indian politics tutor who's never met Benazir Bolson. Um So that was all a bit weird. Um, and and in, the, you know, in the Easter holidays before my finals, I was covering the breakup of Yugoslavia. I was in Croatia and Bosnia for the war, you know. So, um, so yeah, it was very odd, but I didn't bother with Charwell as a result, yeah. But did you, did you ever have to say... student newspapers,
1: sorry. you ever like, say, I, I need an extension because I've got to go to cover the war?
2: No, well, I, I did nearly get thrown out. At the end of my second year, my tutors basically said, you're going to fail your degree, you've got to stop all of this. Uh, and so I did. I, I, I quit um, the, the BBC programmes I was doing um, and the ITV fashion series I once did, which nobody knows about, um, <laughs> but which I used to dress up in all sorts of ridiculous outfits for. Um, and... Um, and so I started my third year, but, but literally, sort of, you know, a couple of weeks before my third year, the children's news program Newsround rang me and said, "Would you like to join us? You can just work in your holidays, and then go full time when you graduate." And so I did that.
1: I mean, most kids like maybe do a paper round. You do Newsround. Yeah. It's like <laughs> it, 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 you're like a sort of like Paul McCartney of news. It's just like it, or like a Wayne Rooney. It's like just like this happens so early and. So permanent. It was. Basically. It
2: was brilliant. No, and in fact, I telegrammed Paul McCartney when I was on Open to Question because he was my who would you want to interview. He's still my who would you want to interview, really. Um, and I sent him a telegram in the days of telegram to the It just Paul McCartney of Kintyre. and would you come on the programme? And he sent one back.
0: No.
2: <laughs> and it was again to cut a long story short. It was no, but it was a very nice no. It was. It was. A, he actually claimed, and I don't well. Why would he lie? But he said, I really like Open to Question and watch it. But, um, you know, I'm not available but, you know, in, in November, December or whatever it was. So, you know, amazing. But you still never interviewed him?
1: I've never met him, no. Surely that's something that can be arranged.
2: I no, I mean, maybe. I mean, but he's not that easy to interview. I mean, you know, to get to interview. Um, I don't know whether you've seen Rick Rubin's interviews with him. I mean, they're amazing, yeah. b- you know, beautiful things. And, and, you know, that's just my... I've interviewed Rick Rubin about interviewing Paul McCartney. That's about, that's about as close as I've got to it. But, yeah, he's still sort of my hero.
1: I mean, that's... Uh, uh, not that Jim will fix it, it's still on. That's what he was... <laughs> Jim was still going, yes. he was right. Can to... <laughs> I come and
2: sit on the side of your chair, you know, sort of <laughs> slightly creepy way that they used to... Yeah.
1: I think we can get a campaign going for you to interview Paul McCartney. I think that's something after this we all have to get on Twitter and do something about. Um, Obviously, you have interviewed big stars that are not politicians, and two that are kind of well-known are Robert Downey Jr. and Quentin Tarantino. And what's really interesting about the Downey Jr. one, watching it back, is that you are just so... And I, I think this is part of the magic of what m- makes you such a wonderful presenter, is, as well as being fiercely intelligent and a, a, a phenomenal journalist. There's also just, you're just so fair and polite, and there's something very nice about the way that you talk to people. And you're being so decent with Robert Downey, and so very British about kind of trying to get to the point. And there's a point in it where you can see his chest starting to expand. He's getting anxious as you ask him about his father and then he basically just gets up and walks out. But what I want to ask you is, there's a bit where he walks past you very closely and it, I wasn't sure if he patted you on the shoulder or shoved you or something.
2: No, he didn't. He's, well, I can't really remember either. I think he did kind of sort of, he, he said something along the lines of, you, you, you seem like an okay guy or something, but before then saying something less flattering and um i'm <laughs> walking out and um the whole whole was very odd to be honest i mean um so i can't really remember exactly what what he did we did actually recreate that whole sketch for channel 4 trailer um i don't i don't really know why but channel 4 went through a period of having a dog as their star for their <laughs> trailers um and and so for their promos they had the dog <laughs> Um, interviewing me in that hotel room. And we went back to that hotel room where I'd interviewed Robert Downey Jr. And, and when we do these interviews for Channel 4 News, there's literally three of us, you know, sort of me, a producer and a cameraman, or maybe two camera, uh, camera operators. And, um, and that's, that's how we do it. For this trail for Channel 4, I think they had about 60 crew, And they'd recreated it. They'd hired a man who looked like my cameraman. And I said, if if would just said that, I could have asked him to come. Yeah, it would have, like, it would have been, and he, would, he would have filmed it as well, you know. And um, but no, so uh, the whole thing, that whole period, very very odd, but a long time ago, strangely. I mean, Tarantino, I think, was was almost exactly ten years ago. It was January twenty thirteen. So, um, and and Robert Downey Jr. was a couple of years after that. So I mean, this is all a long time ago. It's all a bit hazy.
1: Because what connects them both is these are people that I don't think it dawns on they're actually on a news programme and that then it's not the normal junket questions you're going to do with them. And Tarantino maybe, well, Tarantino engages more because he doesn't get up and walk out. But they're obviously just so used to only being asked about the film. Yeah. And as a news presenter, you're not going to do that. But it, it's remarkable that they kind of don't see the opportunity in what you're offering them. They, they take it the wrong way, which given how polite and decent you are about it, I don't know whether that took you by
2: surprise. Yeah, no, I mean, we always try and be very clear that um, we are a news programme, a Channel 4 News. We're not a showbiz show. We're not there to do a trail. We're there to do a proper interview. We always get longer than the other junk interviews, so we normally have 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and we try and prepare them, but what happens sometimes is that PR people just don't pass it on. Um, and that's what happened, I think, with both of those, that they had no idea what they were walking into. Um, and... Um, it goes south. And with, and with Tarantino, obviously he said, uh, you know, words to the effect of, I think what you don't realise is this is a commercial for my movie. And I had to say, well, you think that, but it, it's not, you know, it's an interview. And, um, and similarly with, with um, Robert Downey Jr., you know, he, he also kind of said something along the lines of, aren't we promoting a movie here? And, I was, and again, well, well, you are, um, but that's not what I'm here to do and it for a while made me think, I, I, I wrote, a, wrote a piece in The Guardian I think around then about may, maybe we just shouldn't do this uh, because they want different things out of it. But actually there are plenty of actors and directors who are willing to engage and who, who are really interesting and will talk, Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Redford, all these sorts of people I've interviewed recently. Um, you know, I interviewed Kate Hudson and Daniel Craig and uh, a couple of weeks ago and they're great. Idris Elba, all of these people, they've got really interesting things. To say, but but a lot of the big stars just can't do with it. You know, they don't want to do it. They don't want to be there. They're not interested in engaging. They don't know who I am. With, you know, with British stars, at least they kind of they have a sense of what Channel Four News is, so they kind of know what to expect. But if you're an American, you've got you no know, who is this ass asking me difficult questions. <laughs> you know, not telling me how good I am. Hang know? on, this is the guy who um, went into Savile. This is the. Uh, <laughs> Um, I this guy. So I don't. I don't particularly blame them. But but you know, a lot of them just aren't. A lot of them aren't interested in that and aren't very interesting. It's why I actually prefer doing musicians. I interview a lot of musicians rather than actors these days. And but not think, Paul
1: McCartney. Except, except Paul McCartney.
2: <laughs> um, I'm interviewing every other musician. So one day they'll say, Have you ever been interviewed by Christian? <laughs> But musicians have got something to say because they are, they, you know, they are expressing themselves through their music, and so they've usually got something to speak about as well. Or they, or they're writers. You know, um, a lot of actors are quite sort of um, they don't want to give away who they are because they are they are they are actors who can do anything. They're blank blank pages. You know.
1: I don't know if you ever reflect on it, it was just sort of reminiscing about those clips and how you handle those situations, but. It feels like, you know, you basically get on TV at 15 and since then you've been on the whole time. Have you ever reflected on why you're so successful and what it is about you that makes you so special and different to other presenters?
2: Um, No. um, No, because I have have family who tell me that I'm um, useless. um. My 15-year-old yesterday was saying, Dad, you've got no social skills. You should smile more. And... um, so, so, when you have people who keep, keep you fairly grounded... My daughter's got no interest in Channel 4 News at all. You know, I can make it as interesting as, 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 as anything, but... So, so, no, I don't ever sit there thinking,
1: aren't you good? <laughs> yeah, but I, I just think you've got something that... Like, maybe Simon McCoy had a bit of it. There is there some where you get... There's a sense of, like, personality just twinkles through. And, obviously, you have to ration that so much because you're a professional broadcaster. But, I was just, oh, you, you're so good at just raising an eyebrow here, but also being sweet, and I, I think you show more personality in, in, a, in a really positive way than any other news. That, I mean, that's very
2: nice of you, but I, I think actually what it is is actually because because I've worked across quite a range of programmers, So I've worked in light entertainment, children's TV. People often forget I presented the National Lottery Live program on BBC One <laughs> um, with Anthea Turner. <laughs> I, I have sung down at the old and Bush, holding hands with Danny LaRue. On stage, um, it was a long time ago, but we used to get 15, 18 million viewers. It was these were massive shows. So because I've, I think that because I've done that range of TV, um, and also sort of that, that, that range of TV where, pe- where people are people, and you know they're allowed to be human and 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 show weaknesses and feelings, um, I try and bring a little bit of that to the news, and I think. I, th- I think if Channel 4 News, ha- you know, Channel 4 News has lots of unique things about it, which I've talked about, but I think one of the things we really um, cherish is bringing humanity to the news, to any situation. And humanity might be, you know, heartbreaking, but it might also be very funny. And so we, we, we are, you know, we like being able to laugh on the news and actually, have, you know, tell, not tell a joke, but raise an eyebrow, have a bit of wits, what we're doing, not always be entirely serious. Um, even to the point of doing, I don't know whether you are going to ask me about Richard Ayawadi, but I mean, I did an interview with Richard Ayawadi, which also went viral, and um, that was partly because half the audience got it and half the audience didn't, and it was just a joke interview, and maybe trying to do a joke interview on the news, which is essentially a serious programme, was not a very good <laughs> idea, but... Um, but we got this offer of an interview and Richard Iowadi had written a book but he, he, doesn't, he refuses to talk about himself so he wasn't going to answer any questions about himself. He had, his agenda was to come on to talk to me about Quentin Tarantino which he was very interested <laughs>
1: in. So it was,
2: all, it was very, very complicated and so I rang him and said, right, so well this is what I think we should do and he nodded along and, um, and then we just did this interview which was just quite surreal on, on air and a lot of people... Some people thought it was like an example of me not, I'm just, you know, not getting it, and not, you know, and other people got it, and it was
1: all, it was all good fun. Like,
2: uh, I suppose what I'm saying is, yes, we, we, we don't mind having
1: a laugh on Channel Four News as well. I can't believe you presented the lottery. <laughs> I can't, be, but what, what I mean is, as long as you followed your career, I can't believe I forgot. So, were you in the year? It was like tonight's machine is Gwyneth. Precisely that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was Graham. Was it Graham? I can't no, not Graham. Um, not I can't remember the guy.
2: yes, Graham was blind date. <laughs> but it, it might have been the same Graham. I it see. was a similar it was a similar kind of voice. But, but Mystic Meg um, was I'll part ripy. of our whole you No know, very sad wrestle. May yeah. may she rest in um, in peace. <laughs> and
1: uh, So at that point did you think actually I I could make John light entertainment?
2: No, because don't, I never felt terribly comfortable doing it. I kind of knew that I was I was basically called in after 6 months by the head of news at the BBC and he said because I was working 2 days a week on the lottery and 2 days a week on newsnight uh which was so, so it was the most bizarre um confused existence you can imagine um,
1: <laughs> sort of like hold Mystic Meg to account. <laughs> yeah. Now, hold on. Last week, you're on the record of saying a fireman from Burnley would win. No such thing happened.
0: Uh,
2: and so he called me and he said, do you want to be Bruce Forsyth or Jeremy Paxman? Take a decision. You can't do both.
1: And you anyone, said, yeah. nice to see you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, what a great way to put it. And you chose Jeremy Paxman, obviously, but in your own special way. How do you feel about about the future? Do you think sort of Channel 4 News forever, or are there other projects you would like to do?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it's only a year since I became, you know, the the uh, main anchor at Channel 4 News. Um, so it's still relatively new in that role for me. And um, there's loads still to do within it. But I think alongside it, there are loads of things I'd love to do still. So. I don't, really, I don't really see myself having to leave um, in order to do anything else that I'm interested in. I mean, what, what obviously is the big challenge is, will television news still exist in five years' time or ten years' time? Um, and I don't honestly know the answer to that. You know, will, will we still exist in the same form that we are? Will we still be watching in the same way that we do? Um, who knows? So, but which is partly why we now package Channel 4 News up in all sorts of different ways for social media and, um, and YouTube and TikTok and all those sorts of things. So maybe I'll just be doing it on TikTok in five years' time. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> on Chinese <laughs> statements. <news. laughs>
1: <laughs> Heck of a signing. Um, OK, let's uh, open up the audience to a couple of questions. So I'll take two or three questions. If you could indicate clearly, <clears throat> let me know your name and um, one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers, please. So indicate clearly, just that so I can see. Uh, yes, uh, the woman down here. I just wanted to know how your uh, Ways to Change the World podcast came about. Like, what was the link up with that? How did your Ways to Change the World podcast come about? Oh, thank you
2: for asking about that. Um,
1: I would have done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Ways to Change the World, it, it, part, well, it partly came about because podcasts happened and we thought, right, well, there's an opportunity here um, to do something a bit different. And I... The news interview can get really quite old. <laughs> quite quickly um and i i think at that time it was 2017 i think um and we were i I remember feeling like we were in a real rut in the terms of the, the political interview because you know it's three to five minutes long it's it's rehearsed you know they've come on to say nothing you 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 ask your question three times or four times you try and unsettle them, you try and ask them something else, you're not really getting very far. But it's essentially a confrontational exercise in which everybody walks away a bit pissed off, and uh, including the viewer. And and so I thought maybe, maybe if, I tr- if I'd quite like to do a different type of interview that I haven't done, haven't done for a long time, in which instead of challenging everything that the interviewee says, I kind of go with it. And no matter how on the face of it, ludicrous it might be. You might, you know, ask a question, you get an answer, and say, oh, that's interesting, let's explore that. And so, that was the basic proposition, and I think when we started it, we thought we might have more politicians on, but actually, um, it turned out that politicians weren't very interesting at that, um, and, and often didn't want to do it, because they were terrified by the idea of a long-form conversation. Yeah, what well, a terrible idea for a you politician. Know. <laughs> 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 well, they'll... <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think it's different with you, but but they. I think with me, they didn't believe the proposition. Um, they thought, well, they say that, but obviously they're just going to monster you for half an hour. Um, and so, so quite a lot of them wouldn't say say yes to it at first. But actually, as time has gone on, it's kind of worked out. That it's much more interesting to talk to writers and thinkers and academics and people and campaigners and activists and all those sorts of people who are actually trying to change the world um, and introduce some new new thinking into the the world.
1: Great answer. Okay. Uh, Yes, the gentleman right at the back there. Uh, How did Matt Ford convince you to come here? How did Matt Ford convince you to come here? You make it sound like you're amazed that I get good guests. Uh,
2: WhatsApp, I think, wasn't it? Although it's the answer to everything. <laughs> at the moment, we're in a really spicy WhatsApp group. Um,
1: <laughs> Meet <laughs> you, Matt Hancock. It's Matt Hancock, yeah. He's <laughs> another uh, shot. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Um, um,
2: and yeah, he asked me, and I've I've done it before, so I know he's nice.
1: You see that over Zoom during lockdown, I think. Yes. So it's lovely to have you here in person. Um, I am not be partially offended by the thought that <laughs> I <have> to like <laughs> strong arm you into coming on the show. Um, yes, uh, one more, the woman right in the middle there. Um, has,
2: uh, the right skip. Sorry, i
1: Netflix have bought the right to skip. Scoop. You. Scoop. Right. If anyone's going to play you in a Netflix, who would it be and what period of your career would stay? Great great question if someone was to play you in a Netflix drama or similar who would play you in what stage of your career
2: well I could give you the sort of um, I would like it to be a Brad Pitt or something like that answer but the, tr- yeah, the truth there, there is this actor who for 40, uh, uh, what 30 odd years I've had a grudge against um, because, <laughs> because because when I was 17 I was I was the other weird thing that nearly happened to me was that I nearly became an actor because I was in the National Youth Theatre and the the Manchester Youth Theatre as a kid and um, I was approached by a casting agent who was casting a movie which was going to be directed by John Schlesinger um, who did Marathon Man and um, and it was going to be starring Dame Peggy Ashcroft, Twiggy and a young Indian actor who could play the piano, me, and could and roller skate and I couldn't roller skate but I could skateboard so this part was made for me. And uh and so I went to the auditions, did really well, got to the last two, um, did a musical audition, met John Schlesinger, and at that audition there was a guy called Naveen Chowdhury, who was a couple of years younger than me, um and a bit prettier. And he got the part. And and, and so he starred in this film, he got a royal premiere, the Queen Mother was there, blah blah blah. Um, <laughs> and and then he, he went on and he, he, was in all sorts of, he, he was in Channel 4's Teachers and he's done lots of things since. Um, and so, I think for that alone, if anybody has to play me, I think it has to be him. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he got the life that I would have had.
1: such a great <laughs> answer. Um, oh my God, I can't believe I was gonna not ask you about Steve Baker.
2: Oh God. What?
1: <laughs> my God. What a fool! I thought I'd gotten away with it. You almost got away with it. I am such a cunt. Um, (laughs) So, you get caught on mic. I mean... Right. You must, I mean, let's be honest, in life, you must be saying that about people all the time. But they're just... Of politicians left, right and centre,
2: I am I'm impartial in how I abuse politicians. that's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is absolutely nothing I can say about this that um, would not get me into more trouble. <laughs> so I, I could say nothing um other than to say new, newsrooms are places full of bad language, dark humor, lots of laughs um, and I was laughing at the time if you it was not. It was nothing more than yeah. It was bad. It was wrong. I apologise. It's <laughs> all fine. But but since then, Steve and I have had coffee, and he's even been back on Channel Four News. I and mean, in well, fact, like, when we when I interviewed him last, he walked up and said, "This is going to break the internet."
0: <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> but what I was going to ask about. I, I thought he took it really well because he was he, he just certainly publicly was very gracious and was just like non-taken. It happens.
2: Politicians and journalists
1: swear. But I guess had he not, had he made a fuss about it, that could have been more
0: difficult. Possible. <laughs> 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 I guess what I'm saying is, uh, 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 uh,
1: uh, I guess what it proves. Obviously, you say stuff so to break the tension. That's what you, you know. You do the funny thing. It doesn't reflect your views. Um, turns out, maybe in the way that he responded, is that he's not. You sort of...
2: Possibly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, what a lovely sort of opening! I can't believe you're... You must have been thinking, how have I got away with
2: this? I was. I was. Right down to when that guy said, how on earth did he persuade you to come? I was thinking, because that's all I've been worried about, but yes.
1: Um, <laughs> my God. <clears throat> it was that that made me remember. I, was like, I thought that's where that was going. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this, I'm sure, You've loved this as much as I have. And Christian, I'm, you already know that I'm a huge admirer. Thank you very much indeed. You and your work. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I can't believe I convinced you to do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: please give it up for the amazing Christian and Gurimurthy.
0: Thank you. Well,
1: there you go. Christian and Gary Murthy. What a thrill. And I, I can't believe I forgot you presented the National Lottery. And I can't believe I almost forgot to ask him about Steve Bacon. Absolute wally, but saved it right at the death. My word. Imagine, anyway. What a great guest. And, oh, uh, man. I, 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 there's just so much more you want to ask someone like Christian. You you, you sit there and think, my God, you know what? I'd love to just go for dinner with him and have, like, five hours over some Italian food and about four bottles of red wine and just keep just plumbing him for stories and angles. It just... It, it it's so reassuring that people like Krishna involved in this. obviously there's, and I've had many phenomenal guests on this podcast, Emily Maitlis, Nick Robinson, John Sopel, Laura Coonsberg. exceptional, just as talented as any news broadcasters and political broadcasters you'll find. But there is something about people who are just totally immersed in that industry and think about this and do it every single day. Um, and the perspective it gives them. And I just thought that was so fascinating about having been to so many uh, troublesome parts of the world or, or areas that have been badly affected by uh, just terrorism and, and and the sorts of atrocities they describe, described. Just so much. I just loved every second of it. And uh, and it flew by, as these interviews always do. Before you know it, it's over. And you think, oh, man, I hope I can get him back on in the future. But um, thank you to all of those of you who came. It was, a, a, again, just there's something about doing it live. that Even when you're in a Western theatre, and there's loads of people there. There's an intimacy about a conversation that I think is so special to have live. I think there's a, there's a... It's remarkable that, you know, for all the shows you could put on, brilliant shows that I go and see, plays and gigs and whatever, there is something just... The purity of just talking to someone really interesting is as entertaining as anything else you could put on. And that is entirely down... To the quality of the guests that I'm very lucky come on this show, so I'm delighted uh, to have had Christian on the live show. And my next guest is Ruth Davidson. So come and um, celebrate Scotland getting a new first minister with Ruth Davidson and her analysis. I'm sure uh, will be something you will absolutely want to listen to. And as always, she's very very funny. So I'll see you next time. Thank you for downloading. Please leave a five star written review, share it far and wide, and I'll see you next time. ta-ra